Hello, and welcome to the newest episode in Dialogue Topics. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. This season, we're talking about the history of LDS scholarship on specific themes, exploring in depth a topic to consider how Dialogue has been a forum for these important issues since its founding. We'll also bring you up to date on these topics with our more recent issues to discuss some of the current trends. All of our topic pages are curated to bring you comprehensive collections of annotated scholarship and may be found at dialoguejournal.com slash topic pages, all one word, or navigate there from our homepage. You'll find amazing resources and research on tons of issues. And thanks for your sustaining support. This month, we're looking at the history of scholarship on LGBTQ issues. If you're catching this in June when it's released, happy Pride Month. I have to say that this is an incredibly interesting topic. As some of our listeners know, I've written about LGBTQ history in my book, Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism, which I'm happy to announce was just awarded the Best Book Award from the Mormon History Association. Anyway, it's fair to say that I know a bit about this history, and I will try to use that to contextualize some of what's going on. But I also want to say that I learned a lot in researching this episode. Hopefully I can communicate some of that, the exciting history of scholarship and the pathos of so much of what is behind this scholarship. There's another thing that I want to point out. This wasn't a topic that was central to the founding of dialogue, like so many of the other social issues around race and gender, or even some of the long-standing historical issues. But it's become central to its identity in the last 30 years. Dialogue is proud to be the premier place for scholarship on this topic, the place where such scholarship has flourished, representing a wide variety of perspectives in true dialogue. A quick note on my use of LGBTQ in this episode, a current but imperfect acronym to describe non-normative sexualities and genders. There are sometimes other versions of this label, and leaving out a particular letter is not an intentional slight, just an indication of where the bulk of conversations have been. I do make some mentions of scholarship on intersex issues in this episode, too. The history of this particular alliance between the various populations is its own story, and I recognize that it is somewhat anachronistic to project this alliance back into the past when it didn't necessarily exist, but it remains a useful shorthand for the purposes of this brief story that I tell here. Let's get into it. Act 1. A New Topic LDS leaders began talking about homosexuality in the 1950s for the first time, moving away from the previous understanding of sodomy. The difference is more than just terminological. It represents a real paradigm shift. While sodomy was considered to be a set of acts that one might engage in, homosexuality referred to a broader set of practices, including desires, but also other gendered behaviors. 
LDS leaders were borrowing these ideas from popular mainstream psychological theories. The U.S. in general was engaged in a broad anti-homosexuality scare during the 1950s and 60s. But a few things happened in the late 60s and early 70s that changed. First, the gay rights movement, as it was then called, gained greater prominence and began to speak back to make their voices heard over the medical community, which had stigmatized them as pathological and abnormal. They were saying, leave us alone, protect us from police brutality, and let us live our lives as normal citizens. The second thing that happened was the scientific abandonment of earlier theories of homosexual pathology, which was replaced by saying that such desires were rarer, but not abnormal psychologically. Conservative institutions, however, were wary of both of these developments, including the LDS Church, which fought against legalization of homosexuality and fought to preserve psychological anti-homosexual theories. There was a wave of new manuals, programs, pamphlets, and talks during the 1970s for the first time really addressing this issue in the church. This is the context for the rise of a new discourse on this topic in LDS circles. Solus, S-O-L-U-S, Latin for alone, by an anonymous gay man in the fall 1976 issue of Dialogue is the first entry on this topic. As far as I can tell, this is the first instance of an LGBTQ voice in any LDS publication. It marks the beginning of the modern LDS LGBTQ movement, and it is a doozy. This five-page essay is part of an issue that's dedicated to questions of LDS sexuality. It's one of the classic important issues in the formative years of dialogue. I won't regale you about all of the foundational articles in this particular issue, but suffice it to say that I think that this whole issue marks a key moment in what I call the Mormon sexual revolution, the LDS response to the reformulation of sexual values in the 1960s. Anyway, solace. President Kimball is leading the church and for two plus decades had made conservative sexual morality, including opposition to homosexuality, one of his defining issues. But this essay opens up from a few years earlier at the 1973 priesthood session of General Conference under President Harold B. Lee, in which he spoke on marriage. The author then recounts why he never married and never will. He walks through several traumatic moments of childhood, from a childhood rape to bullying due to failures to perform masculinity. There was intense pressure to marry. One Sunday, he recalls, I heard Elder Joseph Fielding Smith say that homosexuality was so filthy and important that he would rather see his sons dead than homosexual. In growing confusion, I tried to analyze my problem. Was I forever lost? This kind of extremely harsh rhetoric was commonplace from the 50s to the early 80s, and one can see how it brutalized so many. Prayer, blessings, soul-searching, he met with a general authority seeking counsel who told him that he should seek masculine activities in life, like playing basketball, and referred him to a therapist who practiced some of the cure efforts that the church was promoting at the time. Time passes into his mid-30s, and he eventually just stops trying to date women, remaining very active in his ward throughout, and finally comes to peace with the fact that he will never marry. But then President Lee spoke and the pressure campaign from friends and family ramped up again. More work with counselors. Quote, In a lifetime of church activity, I have yet to hear a single word 
of compassion or understanding for homosexuals spoken from the pulpit. We are more than a family-oriented church. Our auxiliaries and priesthood quorums presuppose marriage. A single, much less homosexual, does not fit in. Still, I have a strong testimony of the gospel. I know the church is true, and I want to remain loyal and active. I can only hope that he who welcomed to his side sinners, publicans, and harlots will grant the same grace to me, and that his church will also. It's a somber text from someone dedicated to the church, but estranged from church culture, and in retrospect, a damning report. The man was over 40 and never heard a single word of compassion. There are several letters to the editor responding, some expressing compassion. Others were from gay men who resonated with the message. The letters to the editor in dialogue became the first place where gay LDS members could communicate about this topic in print. Solace and the early letters responding to it come just a few years before another foundational text in the early LDS gay rights movement, though it wasn't published in dialogue. An undergraduate at BYU, Cloyd Jenkins self-published a 50-plus page pamphlet that was a manifesto on why the church should accept homosexuality. Called Prologue, and also The Pain Papers, it's a critique of the psychological theories that the church was relying on to condemn homosexuality and a deep dive into the scriptural and historical arguments in favor of accepting homosexuality. It was just the first of its kind, but it was one that was quite different from the pained solace. It was more strident and polemical about church doctrine, not just culture. And it marked an early split in the LDS-LGBTQ response, reformers versus revolutionaries. Around the same time, Affirmation was founded, an LDS advocacy organization that grew quickly with chapters around the West. The revolutionaries were on the move. Another early kind of literature and dialogue in this period is from LDS psychologists. Val D. Hemming wrote a two-page article in the winter 1977 issue, just a little more than a year after Solace, probably responding to it, titled, Warning, Labels Can Be Hazardous to Your Health, he cautioned against people labeling themselves or others homosexuals. He argued that it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy and that it was an impediment to a cure. This would become a major theory of Elder Boyd K. Packer and others who instituted a cultural taboo on the term that lasted until the early 2000s when self-labeling became somewhat more tolerated. This doctrine has roots in reparative therapy theories. In the fall 1979 issue, LDS evolutionary biologists wrote a really important piece, ahead of its time in some ways, challenging the idea of binary gender. In his article, Intersexes in Humans, an Introductory Exploration, he laid out clearly the problem. We can't say that sex is binary by divine design when it's not binary in nature. So this early period actually shows an interesting diversity of approaches. LDS LGBTQ voices shared their stories, often anonymously still, and pleaded for more compassionate approaches. There are also LDS psychologists buttressing church teachings that homosexuality can and should be changed. And there are biologists that are starting to weigh in. These scientific fights coupled with the empathetic persuasion of personal experience 
set the stage for much of what is coming. Mom had the loudest voice and strongest opinions in the household. It's impossible to feel the spirit in these episodes. From there, it was the grim weeper. How could you have done this to me, to us? That may sound blasphemous, but it's true. She was determined and committed to her sometimes eccentric opinions. Meanwhile, I'm wondering who's this wonderful fairy tale us he's talking about. Most of my mixed state experiences are channeled into a prayer to my Heavenly Father to please send help. Please take me out of this. Please show me a sign that you still love me. No, of course not. That's why I'm here. I'm willing to do whatever to make things right. This is Dialogue Out Loud, a curated selection of fiction and essays from the pages of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, brought to life through voice and music. I feel entirely alone in a permanent night, blocked from sunlight by the wall of earth that is my chemical imbalance. My parents were persuaded that this was not just an adolescent whim and allowed me to be baptized, three days shy of my 19th birthday. Oh, he'll hold my hand in sacrament meeting and take me by the arm and open the car door and do all that chivalrous Sir Walter Raleigh stuff in public. But safe at home, I'm invisible. This year, we're bringing you even more great audio stories from our quarterly journal, including pieces by Neil David Sylvester, Linda Hoffman Kimball, Monica Crowfoot, and more. Subscribe to the Dialogue podcast to keep up on our latest episodes or go to dialoguejournal.com for this and more great audio content. That's dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network. Act 2. New Perspectives. Culturally, this had become a major topic after the gay rights movement launched into the mainstream in the 1970s. The 1980s brought one step forward and two steps back. The rise of the religious right and the Reagan era meant that the gay rights agenda was stalled out and Democrats often walked away from this issue. Secondly, the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s reprioritized the LGBTQ movement to survival and added even greater stigma to these identities. But there was one step forward with psychologists. That brings us to 1987. R. Jan Stout's foundational article, Sin and Sexuality, Psychobiology and the Development of Homosexuality. It's a reminder just how important psychology and psychologists were for mediating these early debates. I go into more depth on this history in my book, but I want to point out that Stout's article is actually pretty transformative. It really was groundbreaking in LDS print media. He talks about how he believed and presented publicly theories on the cause and cure of homosexuality following Freudian psychology in 1970. 16 years later, he states, I can state that what I presented was wrong and simplistic. The evolving change in my views came by examining new research, gaining more clinical experience, 
and looking for alternative explanations to clarify some of the mystery surrounding the development of human sexuality and specifically homosexuality. Stout's overview provides a guide to the updated psychological research from the 1970s and 80s that overturned earlier consensus on the pathologization of homosexuality and on whether it can be cured. He tackles the ethical and moral issues with forced celibacy, but leaves the question open as a mystery of paradox for how to proceed on this topic, warning against extremes on all sides. In fall of 1993, T.J. O'Brien wrote, You are not alone, a plea for understanding the homosexual condition. O'Brien was a gay man, and this essay addresses how church members should treat LGBTQ members. He points to Jan Stout's article, among other influential pieces, that were beginning to soften LDS attitudes and change practices in the early 1990s. But he also notes several examples of terrible things that LDS members were still saying and doing, including an infamous homophobic rant from Orson Scott Card in Sunstone magazine in 1990. The early 1990s is also the birth of Evergreen, a change therapy support group that lasted until the early 2010s. And O'Brien offers some reflections on them and other claims to have been cured. Just as psychologists were starting to question these methods, testimonials from ex-gay men and women were aggressively marketed through various LDS and non-LDS ministries. This essay is really an important look at the culture of the 1990s, the kind of stereotypes and popular assumptions LGBTQ members faced, and a great overview of the science and culture wars up to that point. He spends a lot of time answering the idea that the standards for heterosexuals and homosexuals are the same. Rather than a cure, many liberal Mormons were promoting lifelong celibacy as the solution. How ironic, he says, that for years homosexuality was believed to be caused by a lack of affectionate bonding in childhood, and now the prescribed remedy is more of the cause, isolation. Does it not seem hypocritical for happily married heterosexuals to insist that homosexuals spend their lives on this earth devoid of the deep love and compassion so rewarding and treasured by heterosexuals? He tells his own story of seeking a cure and its failure. Honestly, reading this sometimes felt a little dated. It's nearly 30 years old, but mostly it could have been written today. Quote, I am not so naive as to believe my words will put a stop to prejudice or ignorance. These will continue to surface. It will take time for many people to see in homosexuality much more than mere sexual involvement. My hope is that these observations may somehow serve the small percentage of our people who are dealing with sexual feelings natural to them but different from those of their peers. Perhaps the remarks of one who has dealt with such issues will help them to face trials and conflicts which the world will, out of concern, but with limited understanding, put on them. There are also new historical articles that are exploring this question that show up in the 1990s. D. Michael Quinn was a pioneer on this topic, and in the winter 1995 issue, he published Male-Male Intimacy Among 19th Century Mormons, a Case Study. This was a prelude to his book-length treatment, Same-Sex Dynamics in 19th Century America, a Mormon example, that looked at intimacy broadly defined before the rise of homophobia in the post-World War II era. 
It's a fascinating study of changing norms and practices that allowed once for a huge range of bonding practices between people of the same sex. Quinn himself had come out in the course of researching this article and book a few years before, and this work remains influential. Okay, now there's an article here that I confess that I just discovered last year, despite having worked and researched in this area for years, and honestly, it surprised me, though I'm not sure why in retrospect. The issue was bound to have been raised. In the fall 1998, just a few years after the family proclamation, Gary Watts wrote The Logical Next Step, Affirming Same-Sex Relationships. He notes the inner conflict that gay LDS members faced, having to choose between their desires to have a relationship and their desires to be in the church. It's not a super rigorous study, but it draws on a lot of personal experience and conversation to assess the issues. And he proposes that affirming committed monogamous same-sex relationships would not change doctrines about reserving sexual intimacy for marriage, but proposed that these relationships would not be eligible for sealings. The next essay I want to address in this category comes from our own Bob Reese former editor at Dialogue and a longtime activist and advocate on this issue. His fall 2000 article is titled, In a Dark Time, the Eye Begins to See, Personal Reflections on Homosexuality Among the Mormons at the Beginning of a New Millennium. A straight man and local LDS leader, Reese shares his own experience counseling with LGBTQ members and their struggles from gay bashing, most famously to the murder of Matthew Shepard, to prejudice, and more. Reese talks about his own changed perspectives on this issue that started when he was a singles ward bishop in Los Angeles in the 1980s and shares what he had learned along the way. In rereading this essay, I noticed something I hadn't known before. Reese refers to his friend Stuart Mattis, then an active gay man who was willing to work with others about maintaining their faith and sexuality. Bishop Reese, Mattis reportedly said, the reason I don't like the word homosexual is that the sexuality part is not the most important part of what I want. I want an intimate, loving relationship like my mother and father have. For those who know, Stuart Mattis tragically took his life on the steps of an LDS chapel in Los Angeles in February 2000 in protest of the church's political efforts against same-sex marriage in California. Reese calls for a number of steps and changes as a body of the church to improve these conditions. These were dark times indeed. In this same issue, Hugo Oliaz interviews two important figures in LDS LGBTQ organizing, a former director of affirmation and the founder of Gay LDS Youth, a group that briefly flourished in the early 2000s, but I'm not sure what happened to it after that a great resource for learning more about LDS-LGBTQ organizing during this period. So we can see that among the changing ideas during this era was an increase of what I call pastoral efforts to soften attitudes, encourage more understanding and acceptance, and make new options for life within the faith besides therapy and change. But these were coming alongside changes in the psychological literature as well. From the 1980s to the early 2000s, we see this emergent pushback that came from empathetic recognition of harms, including the loss of lives.
This is Linda Hoffman Kimball of the Dialogue Foundation Board. This is Aaron Brown. I am Chris Kimball. My name is Dalen Amasimaku, board member of the Dialogue Foundation. For nearly two centuries, the Mormon tradition has produced a proud corpus of thought and culture. For the last 50 years, Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, has been the primary repository for the best of that tradition. As individuals have attempted to find new ways to be both Mormon and modern, Dialogue has provided the arena in which these conversations could take place. Dialogue's board of directors has made the decision to make all of the journal's content free the moment it is published. While we are fortunate to be in a position to make this transition, we are asking for your help so we can continue to do so for the next 50 years. Traditional readers can still subscribe to our quarterly print journal, but we also have a new donation model that allows readers to pledge a particular amount per month to support Dialogue's mission. Go to dialoguejournal.com forward slash subscribe to pass along the gift of Dialogue's deep, thoughtful analysis to a new generation of readers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Act 3. Same-Sex Marriage Politics Internal doctrinal issues and pastoral concerns were not all that was going on. Politics was a major battleground for homosexuality, which affected a lot more than just church members. So, in the mid-1990s, the LDS Church became deeply involved in leading anti-same-sex ballot measures in states like Hawaii, Alaska, and elsewhere. But the prize was California, and the results paid off in an early 2000 ballot measure known as the Knight Initiative, or Prop 22. LDS leaders had collaborated with the Catholics during this decade in their campaign to prevent the legalization of same-sex marriage around the country. The church also began to heavily emphasize this to its own membership as well, in documents like The Family, A Proclamation to the World, and other public preaching that aligned the church with the religious right. In that same Fall 2000 issue that we discussed before, there is another article by D. Michael Quinn. Prelude to the National Defense of Marriage Campaign, Civil Discrimination Against Feared or Despised Minorities. This is an important early 50-plus page article documenting LDS political activity in the 1990s on same-sex marriage, culminating in Prop 22. Quinn's argument was that homophobia provided the best explanation for LDS prejudice against same-sex relationships. He set these efforts in historical context of restricting marriage rights for others, what he called despised minorities. He answers many of the common objections to same-sex marriage that people used and argued that it was a civil right. He offered hope for an alternative vision of a more tolerant and inclusive LDS theology. Just a quick note that up on the Dio blog, we have put up a tribute to Quinn's many contributions to dialogue over the years, and we add to the mourning from his passing. In reply to Quinn's article in this same issue, Armand Moss questioned whether the church was motivated by homophobia or a more benevolent force. Letters to the editor in the fall and winter of 2001 were responding to Quinn. Others supported Moss's reply, 
which suggested that homophobia is not necessarily the reason for church leaders to oppose same-sex marriage. Sexual ethics scholarship was an important area where this came up as well. In the fall 2004 issue, Wayne Scow writes, Sexual Morality Revisited. It was a four-part discussion that focused on important aspects of sexuality or morality under-discussed by Latter-day Saints. The nature of sexual moral codes, their origins, justifications, and deficiencies. Our sexual nature, its centrality and power, and the implications that result. Several controversial issues, including the morality of homosexuality and the morality of erotic art and literature and the impact of religious moral restraint on individual sexuality. There's a fascinating response to this in a letter to the editor of the winter 2007 issue titled Celestial Sex? that reflects on many of the problems of LDS sexual theology. Let me mention here a winter 2004 article by Kendall and Daryl White, Ecclesiastical Polity and the Challenge of Homosexuality, Two Cases of Divergence Within the Mormon Tradition. This article compares the community of Christ to the LDS Church. In the early 2000s, the community of Christ began to publicly reassess its policies on ordination and acceptance of homosexuality and opened the issue up for deliberation and discussion among various governing bodies. It was a more democratic, congregational polity than the LDS Church's top-down, authoritarian, theocratic model. This article sets these two governing traditions in Christian context and offers some history of LDS and Community of Christ doctrines on homosexuality. In fall of 2005, there's a really interesting roundtable on mixed-orientation marriages from some of those who are in them and from therapist Mary Beth Rains and longtime advocate Ron Scow. In 2007, there's a really lovely essay by John Gustav Rothal, a man who was excommunicated in 1986 and remains in a relationship, now married to his longtime partner. But he's also deeply committed to the church, attending regularly after having left for other spiritual communities for a time. His essay, Trial of Faith, is a memoir through the history of LDS teachings and his own changing understanding. A spiritual tour de force. I highly recommend this piece. Here's a sampling. The only way any of us can remain committed under these circumstances, I believe, is through an intimate relationship with God under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The only reason I have entered into this path is because the Spirit drew me to it. My ongoing relationship with the Spirit reassures me of God's infinite love for me, of my infinite value to God, and of the unique role I have to play in the unfolding of God's kingdom, even if that role is not understood by my heterosexual brothers and sisters. As we know now, the issue of same-sex marriage did not go away. In 2004, Massachusetts had legalized it. Then the Republican platform advocated a U.S. constitutional amendment against it, and ballot measures to oppose it popped up all over the United States. This issue helped propel George W. Bush to re-election. The church signed on to these efforts, which became more acute as other states were drip, drip, drip moving towards legalization. 
LDS members were paying more and more attention, and opinions were splitting more and more as well. Two important articles in fall of 2007 are worth mentioning. The Case for and Against Same-Sex Marriage, one by Randolph Muelstein and the other by Wayne Scow. These were about legal arguments. The case against same-sex marriage argued that marriage was already tenuous and allowing same-sex marriage would doom it, suggesting that people would all become homosexuals if same-sex marriage were an option. But the follow-up letters to the editors are equally worth reading in the fall of 2008 issue, mostly challenging objections to same-sex marriage. Quote, The logic used by Randolph Muelstein left me baffled. I'm going to end this section with a fall 2009 roundtable on Proposition 8 in California. After Proposition 22 passed, it was overturned by the courts as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the California Constitution. Opponents of same-sex marriage devised a new proposition to amend the California Constitution to ban same-sex marriage, and the LDS Church announced its public support and activism for the measure in the summer of 2008 before the November election. It was a deeply contentious issue, bringing national attention to the church, whose members provided the bulk of funding for its passage, nearly $40 million. The issue was a breaking point for many in the church, and the roundtable attempts to offer a variety of legal and religious arguments for and against the measure. So we can see how much of the decade of the 2000s was really litigating the political issues around same-sex marriage. We were still seeing people pushing for tolerance, but the church's public policy efforts were a big deal and took up a lot of attention. Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. Dialogue Podcast Network. Act 4. New Approaches. In this final section, I'm going to bring things up to the present. There are a few interesting developments. The first is the arrival of queer theory in Mormon studies. Queer theory dates to the 1990s, and in the 2000s it starts to show up in a few papers in Mormon studies. It describes a diverse set of approaches, different from LGBTQ history, in that it's more theoretical. In the spring of 2011, Alan Michael Williams publishes Mormon and Queer at the Crossroads. This essay explores conflicting messages within LDS teachings on LGBTQ rights when it both opposed same-sex marriage in the wake of Proposition 8 and also came out in support of other LGBTQ rights that display both wrath and mercy. It explores a theory of LDS teachings on homosexuality along these lines, 
as well as the context of shifting norms around sexual identity. Later that same year, in the winter of 2011 issue, my own article, Toward a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology, appeared. This was actually the first major article I ever published. I didn't know what to expect, but it ended up being a widely discussed piece, accessed tens of thousands of times. To this day, I still receive notes of appreciation about this article. There have been a number of responses and challenges to the project that I laid out, but I want to tell you that in the winter of 2021 issue of Dialogue, I've got an essay called After a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology, a 10-Year Retrospective. There are going to be a lot of details about the origins and the aftermath of the article that I've never told before. I'm not going to spoil them here, but I will say a few things. One was my own frustration that the pastoral approach to the topic or focus on the causes of homosexuality, not that this wasn't important and probably more effective than my own, but that these were unsatisfactory to me. I had other theological questions that I felt were unanswered. So I set out to examine the link between Mormon theology, reproduction, kinship, and gender to see whether non-heterosexual ceilings might be possible. All of my arguments were an attempt to lay out the problems that I thought needed to be solved, no matter the answers, and to propose possible solutions to those problems. I wanted to be clear that I was not advocating that my solutions were correct, nor that church leaders or members should follow my arguments. Rather, I wanted to raise critical questions about the best arguments that stood in the way of theologically affirming same-sex sealing and to explore their strengths and weaknesses. There are some other articles from this period that are working on setting LDS ideas in broader context. Wilfred Decoux writes in 2013, As our two faiths have worked together, Catholicism and Mormonism on human life ethics and same-sex marriage. This is a fascinating comparison, and he explains, quote, I analyze a number of factors that could ease the way for the Mormon church to withdraw its opposition to same-sex marriage at least as it concerns civil society, while the Catholic Church is unlikely to budge. The summer 2016 issue deserves special consideration. It's dedicated more than half to this topic, the first time in Dialogue's 50-year history up to that point with that much content in one issue. There are two scholarly articles on the empirical research on LGBTQ suicide in LDS contexts. That's less than a year after the November 2015 policy that raised the sanctions on LDS individuals who entered into same-sex marriages. Here's what they say. When we put these data together, it is impossible to know exactly how many suicides there are among Mormon youth and how many of these are related to LGBTQ issues. In large part, this is because data collected by the government on deaths, including suicides, do not generally indicate the sexual orientation of the deceased. Despite this fact, we have described above some compelling evidence that allows us to conclude that there is a significant problem and to make some reasonable inferences. The direct empirical evidence alone is enough to merit a public health response. It further noted that family acceptance or rejection was the single largest factor contributing to mental and emotional health of LGBTQ youth. There are two personal essays in this issue, one from BYU professor Ronnie Joe Draper 
and another from D. Christian Harrison on covenant keeping and boundary making. Both are worth checking out. There's also a really great photo essay by Kimberly Anderson, The Mama Dragon Story Project. The Mama Dragons are a support and advocacy group of LDS mothers of LGBTQ children. Each gorgeous photo is one of the Mama Dragons with a brief story of why they got involved with the group. Anderson photographed more than 80 members and a selection of those are presented in this photo essay. The next really important article in this vein is Bryce Cook's summer 2017 article, What Do We Know of God's Will for His LGBT Children? An Examination of the LDS Church's Position on Homosexuality. It divides the question up into doctrinal, moral, and empirical perspectives. Cook's goal is to understand, to encourage empathy, and to encourage people to see current church teachings on homosexuality as incomplete. In this way, it has a lot in common with the pastoral approaches we've seen before. The analysis here is strong, and this division is a version of other theological traditions that argue from scripture, tradition, reason, and experience to evaluate any theological claim. This essay asks some great questions and raises some pretty serious critiques about the problems with contemporary LDS teachings and practices. The longer this change takes place, he writes, the more we will lose gay people, their family members, their friends, and other sympathetic church members, particularly younger people who do not see same-sex marriage as a threat to society or a sin against God. I next want to note that Blair Osler has written a number of pieces from personal essays, poetry, to articles that are worth noting. Her 2019 article, Queer Polygamy, is an innovative mashup that looks beyond monogamy as the only authorizing type of same-sex relationships. It really pushes the boundaries of what queer scholarship had done, drawing on contemporary polyamory to critique the limitations of heterosexual monogamy and putting that into conversation with the LDS tradition of plural marriage, Osler imagines a new type of polygamy, queer polygamy, that sheds the patriarchal baggage of the 19th century version and its continuation in fundamentalist Mormonism, as well as thinking beyond its presumed heterosexuality. Winter 2020 has an essay that I believe is a first written by Kit Hermanson about their experience as trans. Now, Dialogue had published other trans authors, both before and after transitioning, and we hope to see more, but this is a powerful explanation of some really key issues in how documents participate in a biodisciplinary political project. Most interesting essays on blood, biology, bodies, and religious ritual that I've read in a while, this one should really not be missed richly informed by practice theory and more than a personal essay, this article makes connections to LDS history, literature, theology, genealogy, and more by looking at birth certificates, baptism documents, marriage and death certificates, and beyond. Quote, documentation that supports the heteropatriarchal structure of both the church and state enforces its power and persuades us to work toward reform recategorization, and recognition rather than disruption. The family tree, birth certificate, temple recommend, marriage certificate, and death certificate are all part of this cycle. And surely we can all, regardless of identity, 
find ourselves and stories like ours in the archive if we work hard enough. This theological and political question then is posed for us. How should we use the archive as we construct our own worlds around us? As queer people, what do we fight for? I also call your attention to a co-written piece by Bob Reese and Bill Bradshaw, both grandfathers of this movement, who write a long survey article hosted on the Dialogue website, LGBTQ Latter-day Saint Theology. It's a great overview of the main issues and history of scholarship. In spring 2021, the most recent issue that's just come out as of the recording of this podcast, there are five important pieces that I want to discuss. The first is Alex Griffin's Queer Mormon Histories and the Politics of a Usable Past. This is about vernacular history or popular historical tales rather than professional histories. It looks at all kinds of fun material from Instagram accounts to brand advertisements to see how these stories retell the past in order to comment on the present or a usable past. Another article in this issue, The Theological Trajectory of the Family, a Proclamation to the World by M. David Huston, argues that we should interpret that text in its historical context and glean from it new possibilities. Drawing on feminist interpretive strategies, Huston reads the theological trajectory rather than the plain meaning of the document to discern principles that might endure beyond a narrowly heterosexual family. Taylor Kirby has an article, too, on variety of perceptions of God among Latter-day Saints that includes some analysis of LDS-LGBTQ perceptions of God. Fascinating data here. Finally, John Gustav Rothall, who we met before, writes a really powerful piece, Excommunication and Finding Wholeness. Wow, I love this piece for its ministry to those who are excommunicated by the church and who still believe. He tells his own heartbreaking excommunication story in 1986 and his journey since then. Quote, there have been many times when my excommunicated status has felt burdensome and when I have yearned to be able to be baptized and partake of the bread and water each week at sacrament. However, I firmly believe that I am currently where the Lord wants me to be and I have felt reassurances through the Spirit that eventually all will work out so long as I remain faithful and attentive to its promptings. seeing some really new directions in the scholarship. We seem to be done litigating some of the issues like psychology and biology from before and instead expanding the kind of scholarship we saw in the past. History, yes, but also more theology. We're also hearing more from queer voices, no longer writing anonymously as soulless ones did some 40 years ago. And there are all kinds of experiences from mixed orientation marriage to trans voices and more that are coming into this space. What's missing? You may have noticed that these conversations have been, until pretty recently, dominated by men. Not exclusively, but largely. 
Further, lesbian histories are really absent from the scholarship, which focuses on gay men and the organizations they have largely controlled, like Affirmation. That's changing, but there's more to be done here. So that's it. And I'm proud, if I may say so, this Pride Month of Dialogue's rich history in tackling this central issue in contemporary religious ethics. We're going to be taking a break for the summer, and we'll come back in the fall with fresh content on more dialogue topics. Thank you for taking this journey with me and for taking the journey through Dialogue Journal and for all of your support. If you want to subscribe or donate to Dialogue, you can do so at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. This episode was written by me with editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. Our social media managers are Adam McLean and Calvin Burke. The Dialogue Journal podcast is produced by the Dialogue Foundation, a registered 501c3, with support from Mary Thieves. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture, like The Foyer, where Dr. Patrick Mason, Leonard Arrington, Chair of Mormon Studies at Utah State University, has thoughtful but informal conversations about Mormon history and culture. The Foyer is one of the newest members of the network. Check out all the new shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network.